Hello and good evening. Welcome to the National Library of Australia Theatre. Welcome to all of you who are here with us in the theatre and to those of you who may be watching online, either in real time or at some distant time in the future. Who knows, that's the wonders of the modern world. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Catherine Favell and I look after the library's community outreach programs and it's a very great pleasure to be here tonight to introduce one of my colleagues to you. As we begin this evening, I'd like to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet. I pay my respects to the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, to their elders past, present and future, for caring for this land that we're now privileged to call our home. Today is the birthday of a very significant man to the library. I'm sure you're all here because you've heard of Sir Rex Nankavell, who was an art dealer, collector, and cultural benefactor. He was born on the 8th of April, 1898, in Christchurch, New Zealand. And I think it's fair to say that his collection is one of the collections that the National Library of Australia stands on the shoulders of. The library purchased the Rex Nankavell collection in 1962. And it, well, in fact, I think it was longer than, earlier than that, wasn't it, Nash? Yeah. Um, we'll hear more, we'll hear the exact details. No fake facts here. The collection comprises pictures, prints, maps, manuscripts, books, pamphlets, and photographs relating to the discovery and settlement of lands in the South Seas. You've probably seen just you may feel like you've seen many of the works in the collection, but I can guarantee you've probably only seen a tiny percentage, so vast it is. Our treasures curator, Nat Williams, has been researching Rex Nankerville's life. He's gone to the UK, he's talked to people in New Zealand, and he's uncovered some unexpected treasures hidden within the collection. Tonight, we're going to celebrate Sir Rex Nankerville's birthday. Nat's going to share with us some of the stories from the collector's life, and he's going to show us some of the fascinating natural history items he collected. Please join me in welcoming Nat Williams. Thank you for coming along tonight to hear about Rex on his birthday. I'd like to dedicate this uh, lecture to a, a friend, Martin Cook, who died last week very suddenly. And uh, he followed my research into Rex Nankerville with great interest. He was the foundation director of the David Roche Foundation in Adelaide. Uh, so to Martin and Rex, uh, here we go. I'd like to achieve a couple of things tonight. First, to update you about my research into the life and collecting of Sir Rex Nankervell and relate some of my overseas experiences in speaking to a number of his existing friends and colleagues. Second, to speak uh, briefly about the biography I'm preparing as a result of this research and to share a few new and perhaps surprising facts with you about Nankervell. Third, to speak briefly about a few key items uh, acquired by Nankervell in his indefatigable collecting of natural history-related items and what this might tell us about him uh, and how he collected. 
And finally, I will close with a suite of New Zealand items collected by Nankerville, which speak to the collector's nostalgia about his past and the intensity of his feelings for New Zealand, which sadly he felt he could not return to from England. It can be argued that collecting is a form of identity building and that if it continues long enough and if the collection is rich enough, the items assemble themselves into a self-portrait of the collector. Albeit a self-portrait which is hard to interpret without knowing at least a good proportion of the material gathered together by that collector. The rambling collections of Rex Nankervell, the thousands of items held here, once recognised, give a good sense of his various interests and passions. He recognised the potential for each piece to be simultaneously an artefact and a story. In some senses, they are indivisible. He also understood how pieces would reverberate with each other in time to tell a larger story about our part of the world and its inheritance. He collected maps, pictures, rare books, objects, manuscripts, uh, natural history portraits, goes on and on. He said he read the great narratives of maritime exploration and conquest as a boy in his ship's cabin wood-lined bedroom, built specially for him by his older brothers. What he didn't know until later was that they were in fact his uncles, a fact kept from him as a protection. His boarded bedroom and books a kind of protective shell for him to grow into. As someone who was a natural storyteller and a, a creative inventor of fictional moments in his collecting odyssey, Nankervell clearly saw the potential in collecting for both self-reinvention and for also collecting a personal mythology. The stories he invented were often funny, improbable, sometimes involved the timely intervention of an air raid, they both had drama and luck in spades, and they often involved the long game. They sometimes take the following form. First recognition, a glimmer, a treasure existing somewhere out there in the countryside, which could include Australia and New Zealand as well as England, then finding a lead and pursuing it until a dead end appears. Time passes, years later, another lead, another search, now getting closer and closer. Eventually, the prize is won. Something, usually something amusing happens, and both he and the now ex-owner all love one another. Or he gives some similarly fruity expression of success for both parties. He was certainly not beyond telling a lie to seal a deal or placate an injured party when the need arose. A major problem for any biographer is having no personal material. No diaries, no personal letters, no notes, really, um, to reveal moments captured in, in um, prose or, or image. This is largely the case with Dan Cavell, and I think to an extent it was self-preservation and it was purposeful in the way that he crafted that. One has to tread carefully, therefore, in, in creating such a per recreating such a person when the source material is measured and filtered and sometimes artfully arranged. Um, Nankervell's collection building was epic. It was forged through alliances, good luck, and obviously access to considerable funds generated from his gallery dealings. The project was also successful not just because of his passion for collecting and for, and for interesting objects, but also 
because his escape from his difficult past as a bastard and as a young homosexual man in New Zealand meant that he happened to be in exactly the right place and at the right time to gather up his many treasures. Uh, you can see here on the screen just a couple of scraps from his papers here which are littered with business cards or notes saying something, someone might have mentioned um, to him something interesting, you know, so-and-so collects Australian material or New Zealand material. He also met people in the antiquarian trade through his Redfern Gallery contacts. People such as John Maggs from the famous Maggs Brothers booksellers or senior figures in both Christie's and Sotheby's. He, <coughs> he also, uh, sorry, he became a famous dealer in the cutthroat world of London art trading. It seems he came to know everyone, including expats from Australia and New Zealand who would visit him. New Zealand's John Beaglehole and Ken Webster, uh, our own Bernard Smith, Rex and Thea Reinitz, uh, Robert Menzies, and of course the National Library's indefatigable Harold White. And ultimately his business partner and great friend, Harry Tatlock Miller, and his life partner, the talented Australian designer Loudon St Hill. Harry was to help Nankerville become one of the most prominent and successful dealers in the British modern art market. Well, today marks Rex's 121st birthday. Although he was known to be fluid with the truth uh, and claimed he was actually born a year later, so that would make him 120. Uh, but this was perhaps his, his earliest fib. And uh, you can see here that he manages to get his earlier birth date actually chiselled onto his grave, uh, which I visited uh, with my partner last year in September in West Lavington in Wiltshire. He had the last laugh in that respect, I suppose. Anyway, on his birthday, I hope you all leave better informed about an industrious, dedicated, visionary, remarkable if naughty chap who battled adversity to achieve all that he did in his six-decade collecting odyssey. If you work it out, he sort of collected probably roughly two things a day for 60 years. I also hope that you leave better appreciating his truly remarkable legacy, which I am profoundly lucky to be able to investigate on a weekly basis. Nankervell's collection is full of surprises and will continue to reward researchers for decades to come. The collection's depths are still not fully plumbed and it's still not fully digitised. And if that's something you would like to assist the library with, please see me afterwards. Um, <clears throat> we are unlikely to see Nankervell's like again. And sadly, our national institutions need the Rex Nankervell's of this world, whatever form they take these days, more than ever. I've spoken about Nankerville's life and achievements before, but not recently. And as a result now of two overseas trips to London, and then most recently last year also to Wiltshire, Somerset and to Cornwall, and through meeting some of his existing friends, I feel I have a much better understanding of the man and of his complicated and rather improbable life. As a collector, he is deserving of a serious biography and I intend to deliver one in time, warts and all, which will include some very unexpected turns. As a man, his narratives, sometimes audacious, sometimes suppressed, and sometimes happily public, is also worthy of placing on the record. Nankervell was significantly aided by two women that ended his life early on in England. Without his beloved old godmother, Fanny Hulbert, whom he met while at Codford Army Camp, and with whom he is buried, 
you can see the... Oh, sorry, I think I've jumped too far ahead. There. Um, which, uh, with whom he is buried, and you can see the family tomb here. Uh, his life would have taken, I think, quite a different course. He specifically directed for he did reap to be carved on his tomb, as you can see here. Writing only, Fanny would understand what was meant. Um, and then the inscriptions here is not very clear, but it says the inscriptions relating to the proverb carved on Fanny Halbert's grave, whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he reap. And the Hulbert, what seems to be the Hulbert family motto, which is on the, the other slide, which is rather greyed out there, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. So he obviously felt, you know, in that pious way that he had at the end of his life probably pleased Fanny, his godmother, and he certainly did reap. A couple of years ago, through the current directors of the Redfern Gallery, Richard Galt and Richard Selby, I was introduced to Maggie Thornton, who worked at the Redfern Gallery from the early 1960s. Maggie was first an assistant to Nankervell, then eventually an owner-director of this prestigious gallery. One of Maggie's friends and ex-business partners is Gordon Samuel, who now co-owns the prominent Osborne Samuel Gallery. Uh, this is a gallery which specialises in British sculpture, uh, for example, the artist Henry Moore, uh, Lynn Chadwick, it also specialises in Grosvenor School prints and contemporary artists like uh, William Kentridge and British modernism generally. Gordon cre credits his great success to Rex Nankervell and his belief in him. He started as a gopher, aged 17, getting lunch, running errands, going to the printer and ended up co-directing the gallery. I'll mention Gordon again briefly later. So on my trips to London in 2017 and 18, I managed to record interviews with numerous people from different uh, sectors of the art world who knew Rex Nankervell. I felt I had to do this before people started being uh, unreliable sources due to age or infirmity or sadly died. This has now happened to one of my interviewees since I met her. This meant I could begin to develop a number of views on the subject under consideration. I recorded interviews with Nankervell associates and friends, Maggie and Gordon, who I mentioned, two of his artists, both sculptors, um, William Pye and Brian Neal. Uh, I also recorded uh, Rex's um, accountant and executor, Ken Hanks, who's still going at the age of 93. Uh, I also recorded an interview with remarkable collector, Marlene Burston, who has one of the best private collections of British art in England. Um, my visiting her in Belgravia was astounding, really, and she shared a memorable story concerning Rex's generosity. Uh, through Maggie, I also met a delightful woman who has been her predecessor in the Redfern Gallery, uh, Antonia, or Tony Garrosh, as she was when she worked there. Tony had her wedding reception in the Redfern Gallery at Nan Cavell's suggestion in 1961. Here she is on her wedding day at the Redfern with various ta photographs taken by James Mortimer, whose photographs we hold in the collection here. Um, and she's obviously there. In the middle, on the right, standing next to the waiter, are 
Harry Tatlock Miller on the, on the right and on the left his partner Loudon St Hill. Um, Oh, the other image I should have said, there's Rex Nankervell fiddling with his coat and laughing. Something you don't see very often. He seems to have been rather camera shy. It might have been his teeth. Or he just didn't like having his photograph taken, perhaps. Um, so, Tony, who I met and spent a day with, told some extraordinary stories. Um, really quite remarkable stories. Uh, some of which are not fit for repeating here, but they'll go in the book one way or another. <laughs> Each of these interviews filled in crucial information about the collector and his complicated and productive life. His work ethic, his sense of humour, his generosity, his, his tightness with money also, his kindly nature, his sex life, what he wore, he liked bow ties, uh, his habits, he didn't drink or smoke, uh, for example, and live fairly simply, but he did have a love for fast, expensive cars, uh, Bentleys and Rolls Royces generally, but he also purchased uh, Baron von Ribbentrop's special Mercedes when he exited London in a hurry. Hitler drove the same model, apparently, which sold in 2009 to a Russian collector for £5 million. It's a slightly creepy footnote to the Nankervell story. What came out of speaking to all these people, uh, his associates, was that they clearly loved him, uh, even while recognising that he could be a rogue. And one of the stories Antonia told me very briefly was that he used to get high-quality prints from a particular magazine called Cahiers des Arts, and he'd take the prints out by Matisse, Bonnard, um, Vuillard, Picasso, and he had rubber stamps made up and he'd just stamp them. Um, and sell them, for not full price, but for a kind of modest, um, nice return. So he was doing rather well out of that, kept them going through the lean times. Um, slightly unorthodox, but, you know, people have done worse. Um, and that's Tony with her wedding gift from Rex Nankervell, that little side table and a painting by Sari Richards. She's still alive and kicking. Interestingly, Rex Nankervell occasionally used to refer in his correspondence to his old, damp Elizabethan place down in the country in which he stored his collection. Intrigued, I looked through his papers and eventually came across this single colour photograph of Sundial House, Courton Wilts. He's got the most terrible writing you can imagine. Uh, and then later, another image of the Bentley parked at the front. As you can see, it is a simple Georgian house, dating 1775, uh, not Elizabethan, obviously, and it sports a sundial. Uh, I visited and eventually found the house... Uh, I found the house first via Google Maps, eventually, and visited it last September, whereupon I met Richard Witt, the farmer that owned Sundial Farm and used to own the house. It's a lovely... It's a, quite a substantial, nice house. Um, it was an interesting set of events that led us to that point. But the little round window on the end here is that's the porthole window that Rex Nankville had in his room. So basically, um, I met Richard. He used to own the farm. Uh, I later recorded an interview with him, and he'd known Rex since he was born. He's now 74. 
and uh, has a twin brother and was full of stories about Rex. The two boys loved him and they used to help carry art and books up and down the tiny staircase into their great aunt Lillian or Nin's attic. I, that, I then met the current owner and then stood in her attic, quietly contemplating the fact that Nan Cavell had stored thousands of items in this space, miles away from wartime bombing and possible theft. It was a slightly surreal moment. It's now a, a teenage daughter's bedroom, as you can probably see. Um, as kids, Rex used to bring the twins boxes of nougat and presents from nearby Bath, where Bainton's bindery still exists, and where Nankerville spent a fortune over decades having his books bound, slip-cased, covered and restored. It seemed Nankerville had found a loving family who he maintained, con uh, maintained contact with for most of his life. Some might be cynical and think it was just opportunistically using their generosity. However, the warmth effused by Richard when speaking about Rex suggested otherwise. So it transpires Rex's country house was actually owned by Auntie Nin and that Nankerville stored his collection there and had free room at his disposal for 40 years. Nin loved him and prepared special meals when she knew Rex and his offsider Mizuni, Nuari, were driving down in the Bentley for the weekend. Mizuni, who was in Nankerville's life for 35 years, has been cast by some researchers as Nankerville's live-in lover, chauffeur and general factotum. It's always interesting to question such assumptions. When I asked Richard, who the person was in this photograph next to the corn dollies in his shed, he said ruefully it was Angela, his sister. Angela was a champion corn dolly maker. She was also eight years older than the twins and had a romantic relationship with Misney for years. He would borrow the Bentley and take her out to dinner, go dancing, uh, go to the movies, always getting noticed because they were turning up in such an amazing car people would actually leave the picture theatre to come and look at the car rather than go to the movie. Maggie Gordon and Antonia all relayed the same message about Mizuni. He'd been married and fathered a son, Rashid, and, uh, but had later divorced. So it turns out Mizuni was something of a ladies' man. The relationship with Nankabel was of a different caste, I believe. He had picked up Mizuni in Algeria uh, in the 1940s and brought him to London where he organised to have him cured of his TB and Misney became an indispensable part of Rex Nankabel's life. I think he grew to see him much more as a son and heir, despite the apparent class, ethnic, sexual um, and religious differences. Tall, well-built, exotic and good-looking, Misney had many flings and a passionate relationship with the daughter of the Queen's long-serving private secretary, one of the most influential figures in Britain. Nankerville's life, strangely, often seems to be linked to those in power and those with influence. Sir Anthony Blunt, the keeper of the Queen's pictures uh, and spy, was also a good friend, before the fall at least. Without the love and support of a network of people like Auntie Nin and Godmother Fanny and more strategic contacts, Nankerville would not have succeeded the way he did. Certainly Fanny's financial 
uh, support both before and after her death in 1934 led to Nan Cavell's success in putting the Redfern Gallery on the map. He sold paintings to the Queen Mother and to the Queen and to many other famous Britons such as Richard Attenborough, uh, John Gilwood, John Mills, Vivian Lee, Elizabeth Taylor. They were all sort of friends and associates. And, and ask me more questions at the end if you're interested in hearing a bit more. I can't do them justice tonight. Um, another interesting discovery I made through my English research visit was Audrey Russell's great friendship with Nan Cavell. She was not only the first female BBC radio news reporter and the first female accredited war reporter, but she became a distinctive voice known in every British home. She broadcast the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II live in 1953 and also the funeral of Winston Churchill in 1965. We've held a 1970 radio recording here, which is an interview of Rex Nankerville being questioned by an unidentified woman. Well, it is in fact Audrey Russell, who has a very distinctive voice. The unfortunately rather brief interview is not yet digitised. It's significant that the famous Audrey Russell gave the eulogy in St Paul's Cathedral Chapel as part of Nankerville's memorial service in 1977. During Nan Cavell's life, the Redfern Gallery specialised in modernist, uh, British modernist painting and printmaking and then in French uh, post-impressionism and European modernism. He had joined the gallery in 1925 and ultimately it was, a boom, it was the boom in value of this post-war art that ensured Nan Cavell could acquire the outstanding Australasian collection he did and which we are now lucky enough to own. Nan Cavell's hold on the gallery from the 1930s was strategically engineered through his funds via Fanny Halbert and through alliances with key figures in the aristocracy and in the visual arts, business, theatre and cinema worlds. I will come to one business partner in a moment, but first, as an example, Charles Lawton, the British actor, was perhaps his closest friend. And as an almost e exact contemporary, Unlike Nan Cavell, who served rather ungallantly in World War I and was punished for various infractions, Lawton was gassed as part of the Huntingdonshire Cyclist Battalion. In his oral history, Nan Cavell claimed to have been gassed in the famous Messines raid, then later in the BBC interview, uh, claiming that he just luckily missed out because he had the flu. Um, it's one of those switches that seems to happen regularly. In reality, Nan Cavell was in a New Zealand Army field hospital working as an orderly. I believe that he was protected from the perils at the front by a patron, an officer higher up in the command, who I'm trying to identify. Lawton, married to Elsa Lanchester, was gay and a major art lover and collector and survived the war and went on to fame and fortune, obviously. Nan Cavell was devastated when Lawton died in 1962. It's interesting to look at this image Nan Cavell captured, presumably of his hospital attic room. Far from the privations of the front, it looks comfortable and significantly features 10 books and numerous postcards and photographs stuck to the wall. It looks like the bedroom of a visually engaged young student and Nan Cavell was a keen reader. It seems the processes of reinvention were underway as soon as he arrived, age 18, in England. During the war, Nan Cavell was surprisingly discharged to study at Imperial College. 
and he'd only gone to level 10 and studied bookbinding after that, so this seemed rather unlikely. So rather than to fight, this is something which also doesn't seem to have occurred. That is, his army record certainly shows he was released to study at Imperial College, but there seems to be no record of that happening when I checked. Most peculiar. So what was he doing for a year or more until formally discharged? It seems to be a bit of a mystery. However, based on hundreds of photographs held here and recently digitised, it is possible, well, I think it may be possible, that he escaped to Egypt with the aid of a benefactor, if these images can be believed. <coughs> the uh, photographs we hold seem to suggest a serious interest in Egyptian antiquities, and he's also quite a good and imaginative photographer. I like the one of the cow, particularly. Um, it is possible that he didn't take the Egyptian images, of course, but if that is the case, then what was he still up to between 1917 and 1918-19? Cavell's existing photographs also reveal a strong interest in medieval architecture, castles, historic sites, fortresses, statuary and ruins. Stonehenge in Wiltshire features as well. By the end of the war, on his military will, as you can see here, he has evolved from Reginald Nan Kivell, one word, into Rex de Scharenbach Nan Kivell, a young man on a mission. It is interesting that in the early 1920s in Wiltshire, a locus of Nan Kivell activity throughout his life, he becomes enmeshed in archaeological digs and generates a considerable hoard of antiquities which he scrupulously records, documents and artfully sketches and paints in watercolour, as seen here. In 1930, he then gives the whole collection to the Devizes Archaeological Museum in Wiltshire, which is now the Wiltshire Museum. This is his first act of beneficence and it consisted of well over 300 plus items. Some are displayed in the museum today and you can see some in that photograph top right. Um, I visited the museum last year and took these photographs of his sketchbooks held in their archive and also of their displays. And he's not a bad hand at a watercolour either. I believe any rough edges in Nankerville's post-war English life were smoothed to an extent by a patron, or possibly a number of patrons, who were probably also homosexual. These associates seem to have assisted him to prosper and to become the debonair young chap he became at the centre of the London art world. Nankerville claimed the High Court judge for whom he claimed he worked, part-time as a marshal on the district court circuit for 10, or if you believe him, 15 years, uh, introduced him to the original owners of the Redfern Gallery, Arthur Nivett Lee and Anthony Maxstone Graham. There is no record of this marshalling arrangement in the archives of the Courts of Justice either, but I believe it may have been a private understanding which he negotiated to his benefit. He was young, gay, relatively alone, other than Fanny, without many means and vulnerable, but obviously canny from an early age. It seems to me he found a way to work the system to his favour. He had already transformed himself, at least on paper, from you know, Reginald Nankivell to the dandy Rex de Scharenbach Nankivell. This sits comfortably with the creation of a new persona which would be more appealing to the elite he would later go on to sell art to, but also to any opportunistic men who had means and wanted companionship, sex 
and possibly to make some money from supporting a young art dealer in the making. Post-war, Nan Cavell was linked to the so-called Bright Young Things, a nickname gave, given by the British press to a group of bohemian young aristocrats and socialites in 1920s London. In the post-war pre-depression era, they threw elaborate fancy dress parties, went on extended treasure hunts through nighttime London, uh, and drank heavily and often took drugs as well. Evelyn Waugh satirises them rather beautifully in Vile Bodies, published in 1930. Among Nankerville's associations was Napier Aylington, known as Naps, to his friend. <clears throat> a couple of years older than Rex and a bright young thing, Captain Napier George Henry Sturt, 3rd Baron La Aylington, was a British peer. He was born in 1896 and succeeded to the barony in 1919 on the death of his father, and he'd served in the First World War in the RAF. He owned the Critchell House estate in Dorset, which you can see here. Knapps married Lady Mary Sybil Ashley Cooper, daughter of Anthony Ashley Cooper, the ninth Earl of Shaftesbury in 1928, and they had one child, Mary, Anna Sibylla. Elizabeth Sturt. So they're related to Sturt the Explorer, which is interesting. Aylington is probably best remembered for having an affair with the actress Tallulah Bankhead in the 1920s. He was described as well-cultivated, bisexual, with sensuous, meaty lips, a distant, antic charm, a history of mysterious disappearances, and a streak of cruelty. His bisexuality was well known. Knapps was, probably, uh, was associated with Nan Cavell as his partner in the Red Fern Gallery from 1930. He bought connections, good looks, reputation, and no doubt some useful funds to the operations of the gallery as it rode through the Depression. Nan Cavell became the gallery's manage, managing director in 1931. On this invitation, you can see both their names uh, from an exhibition in 1933. Nan Cavell and Knapps were lovers for a time, and they remained very close. Knapps, sadly, was to die early during the Second World War from pneumonia while serving in the RAF in Cairo, aged only 43. Significantly, Nankervell launched the Grosvenor School of Printmakers through the Redfern Gallery through, uh, during the Depression. The coloured lino-cut prints were made as cheaper contemporary art, which middle-class collectors might afford. The best known of these prints today sell for around £100,000. The artists, including Claude Flight, Cyril Power, Sybil Andrews, Lil Sudi, and the Australian women, Dorrit Black, Ethel Spouse, and Evelyn Syme, were inspired by Italian, by Italian futurism and the English variant vorticism, led by the painter Wyndham Lewis. The dynamism and imagery of the modern machine age, exemplified by life in a large city, the scenes of the tube, of bus travel, of fun fairs, fast cars, sport, etc., were popular. A survey exhibition of the Grosvenor School has been curated by Gordon Samuel, who I mentioned earlier, and is being opened soon in London at the Dulwich Picture Gallery with an accompanying major catalogue which acknowledges Nankervell's early role in promoting and showing these artists. It is worth mentioning that in 1953, Nankervell generously gave 
1,300 prints, including important works by Grosvenor School artists, to the four major galleries in New Zealand. Today, collectively, they would be worth many millions of dollars. It is unclear, however, whether he actually ever owned these works in the first place to give them away. So um, that's something that needs to be tied down a little more. While being gay was not only illegal, but dangerous for a young man out of his provincial environment, Nan Cabell seems to have found a way into the parallel world that operated for gay men in the period. Homosexual sex was not to be legalised in England until 1967, and Nan Cabell knew men that had been prosecuted and jailed. Friends. He was 69 by the time the law was changed and had been very lucky not to have been caught out as he took considerable risks to have sex, usually transacted for money with a motley crew of rough blokes, one of whom, little Jimmy, who may have had affiliations with Ronnie Cray, the gay identical twin gangster, murderer and psychopath. <laughs> Ronnie Cray, interestingly for a time, lived around the corner from Nan Cavell in Bohemian Fitzrovia with his dangerous brother, not so dangerous as Reggie, but uh, uh, Ronnie, uh, living with his brother Reggie, literally in the next street. Fitzrovia was a haven for artists, eccentrics, mavericks, writers. It was the home of the BBC, the fashion industry, and it was to be Nankerville's home for most of his life in London. In a drab, tenement-like basement flat here on Gosfield Street, in which he lived rather simply, other than for the works of art on his walls, as you can see here, uh, he has a little Manet of Bertha Morisot above his head, uh, he has a painting by a follower of Bosch, uh, which is quite an interesting one. I worked it out from the leg on that picture sticking out there on the top left is actually the leg of the skeleton figure there. Um, and also quite a famous by Charles Cordier, uh, as you can read there. Uh, he also lived with a very famous Gauguin self-portrait, which is now in the uh, Musée d'Orsay, uh, a Matisse, and important prints by Picasso, Clay, Braque, Bonnard, Vuillard, Toulouse, Lautrec, etc. Other better known 20th century residents of Fitzrovia included the artists Augustus John, Williams, uh, Walter Sickert, and he showed both of them at times, uh, and Wyndham Lewis, writer and actor Quentin Crisp, the poet Dylan Thomas, the occultist Alistair Crowley, the artist and writer Nina Hamnett, uh, Virginia Woolf and George Orwell, so it's a pretty action-packed neighbourhood. <laughs> Charles Lawton and his wife Elsa Lanchester lived there too, about five minutes away from Nankerville's subterranean flat on Gosfield Street. In 1941, having survived the London Blitz and as his career ascended new heights, Nankerville was trading his way through the war as part of the war effort. The threat of bombing was catalytic in his beginning to think more seriously about what to do with his now large and vulnerable collection. Many London galleries had shut down and a close call with the bomb allegedly led to Nankerville having to empty the art from his gallery storeroom while bomb squad experts defused an unexploded bomb through the wall next door. Nankerville, however, had another unexpected bombshell ticking and I acknowledge my colleague and friend Gary Kent for this tip-off. As you can see here, he was arrested for receiving stolen goods, two typewriters to be specific. This newspaper story mentions the recent death of his friend and partner, business partner, Naps Allington. 
For a normal mortal, a public humiliation of this kind, especially while working at the centre of the trust-reliant art world, would have been fatal. For Nankervell, he seems to have just brushed it off and kept on selling and buying more stuff. This says something about his resilience, but also his ability to talk his way out of difficulties and to convince people of another narrative. I'm sure it no doubt would have been a miscarriage of justice. He would have made uh, a great PR agent, and, and in one sense, he was one. Um, I'm going to leave Nankerville's life there tonight because I don't want to you know, give you too much to think about. Um, and we'll look at now at some of his uh, natural history collecting as an example both of the richness of his collecting but also what it perhaps reveals about him. Um, natural history illustration is a strength of his collection, not just in books, but also in watercolour, in engraving and in lithograph. Thankfully, there are no stuffed koalas or stuffed birds. Um, here you can see a wonderful uh, collection of New Zealand pressed ferns. He also has within the collection a lovely collection of New Zealand pressed mosses. Images, coloured and uncoloured, were pressed into the thousands of pages of books which Nankervell collected, and as you've just seen, are complemented with delicate specimens of real New Zealand ferns, mosses and seaweeds. The remarkable diversity of Australian and New Zealand natural flora and fauna fascinated the indigenous occupants of the lands they rightly owned. Here, for many millennia, and in the case of Aotearoa, for more than seven centuries. The earliest descriptions, both written and painted, of the plants and animals and even the human inhabitants, fascinated Nankervell too. His collection richly catalogues the discovery of life in the Pacific, in all its splendour and diversity. From Cook's endeavour artist, uh, Sidney Parkinson's depiction of the breadfruit here, from Tahiti to Thomas Martin's Universal Conchologist, the most beautiful shell book ever produced, um, to Captain John Hunter's extraordinary First Fleet sketchbook from Port Jackson in 1788 to 1790, which Nankerville referred, referred to as the, the jewel in the crown of his collection. From singular items depicting plants, trees and marsupials, including birds in their thousands and numerous insects and shells, to watercolour landscapes awash with eucalypts, banksia ferns and cowrie. Here we can see a selection of delightful plates from the nat naturalist's miscellany, Vivarium Naturae, produced between 1789 and 1813 by George Shaw in London with illustrations by Frederick Polydor Nodder. The British artist Nodder also worked for Joseph Banks on his famed Florilegium uh, publication and was also the botanical artist to Queen Charlotte and produced engravings for John White's Journal of a Voyage to New South Wales. Within this set collected by Nankerville, there were well over 500 loose coloured plates. But he also collected two further bound sets running to dozens of beautiful leather bound volumes. Nankerville's commitment to acquiring such imagery, no matter the cost, implied storage issues or heft to transport and handle was really remarkable. It's, and I must say, it's wonderful being able to compare the different versions of the same colour images across his collection. 
One can do this also with his copies of Thomas Martin's book, The Universal Conchologist, which I just mentioned before. This printing and hand colouring project documenting the shells arising from Cook's voyages was epic and exhausting. Martin trained numerous young boys from good homes, he said, to paint in watercolour the paired shells arranged on the page. Each one of the copies had to be identical to the numerous other copies offered by subscription. The result was fabulous, but Martin's ambition to continue the project with more volumes was quashed. The volume is, however, the greatest highlight of conchological book collecting and, of course, Nankerville had two sets, not one. One bound set and one volume unbound. Nankerville's collection also holds surprising natural history collection firsts. This image of the poa, or tui bird, from New Zealand takes the credit of being the first coloured mezzotint print in history. A stuffed specimen of a tui was taken back to England by Joseph Banks and given to his friend, the bird-mad collector Marmaduke Tunstall. This bird was later published, as you see here, by the Danish-born natural history um, artist Peter Brown in his engage, engaging volume, New Illustrations of Zoology, which is in the middle. Uh, and that was in 1776. The New Zealand creeper, he called it. The image of the tui became the first New Zealand bird ever published. However, in London earlier the same year, a multiply awarded young, ambitious engraver, Robert Laurie, saw the opportunity to both make some money and to make a name for himself. He laboriously created the power in a five-colour printed rendering of the Tui. The revolutionary coloured mezzotinto print suitably impressed the Royal Society for the Encouragement of the Arts. Um, and Laurie, still only 20 years of age, or in his juvenile state, as he put it, was required to print two copies of his coloured poa not long after completion of Cook's second voyage. Laurie's poa was probably modelled on a taxidermy tui collected on Cook's second New Zealand visit when the crew had more success in its bird collecting. Ultimately, Laurie was awarded 30 guineas as a premium for his ingenuity, which was a lot of money at the time. Only seven coloured lettered copies like this one belong uh, which belonged to Rex Nankerville, exist today. In his early type catalogue of his collection, he listed the poa as a very rare, important print. The collector was certainly accurate in that assessment, and the library is lucky to own a copy. The British Museum only acquired theirs as recently as 2010. The death, possibly by suicide, of Sir Ashton Lever in 1788 was a quiet footnote to one of the greatest chapters in the collection and display of the world's natural and artificial curiosities. Having been, uh, first been divested through a public lottery in 1786, then moved and augmented, Lever's remarkable collection of nearly 30,000 items was finally auctioned off in 1806. Enmeshed in the Leverian story was a young woman whose skill as a painter matched the demands of her obsessive employer. Sarah Stone, born in 1760, happily toiled for Lever in the whole of Fusicon, his private museum of wonders, and documented many of his treasured specimens. Her engaging watercolours, ranging from birds and bats to bivalves, were excised from Lever's lottery, signalling their importance to him and their range. 
Lever could contemplate her faithful drawings as a simulacra while lamenting the loss of his collection. The young artist continued to paint as the collection evolved into the Leverian Museum through its new owner, the lucky ticket holder, James Parkinson, a law stationer. For a time, for a time and for half a crown, visitors could view Lever's memorable objects and Stone's images of them in well-heated rooms, brightening even London's dullest day. Stone's well-known image of the Holofusicon interior, which you just saw, gives the view as one entered the white-painted rooms, contrasting the plumage and forms of countless birds with the endless variety of shells, uh, wet specimens and trophied horns. All were offset with a welcoming stuffed elephant and an Eskimo kayak. Must have been pretty extraordinary. Uh, Stone's first watercolours may have been made as a small child and she lived to the venerable age of 82. We do know that she exhibited at the Society of Artists and at the Royal Academy and created a series of paintings from specimens sent to us in England by First Fleet Surgeon John White. Stone brought the intriguing fauna to life. Some almost seemed to exhibit personality, as you can see here in this pairing. This was a major achievement given the gutted skin she was working with. The Extraordinary Colony Australia exhibition held last year at the National Gallery of Victoria included Stone's interior of the Leverian Museum and the Library's Birds, which you can see on screen. Encountering the surprising array of nature here posed challenges for many artists, irrespective of their skill set. Artists had to overcome Antipodean improbabilities. Kangaroos, platypuses, wombats and koalas all proved difficult. Birds were better served, as can be seen here in these two spirited but delicate watercolours. The cocky and the kookaburra looked to each other in the exhibition almost as if in a dialogue. But what were their original names? In 1793, two New Hollanders were recorded as visitors to the Leverian Museum. These men must have been Benelong and Yemrawani, his companion, the indigenous Australians who travelled to England with Arthur Philip. Looking through the displays, they may well have sighted the birds with their keen eyes and softly spoken their names, Garraway and Gugubara. Recently, while researching undigitised works in Nankervell's collection, I found this. A new find, NK231, catalogued as a parrot of New South Wales by WR. The catalogue record for the watercolour makes reference to it being a copy of the John White image from his Journal of a Voyage to New South Wales. What the original cataloguer seems to have overlooked is that it would appear to be an original and hitherto unrecognised Sarah Stone watercolour of the rainbow lorikeet or blue-bellied parrot, albeit from a later date, post-1816, uh, but following the John White journal images. The work is painted on paper, clearly watermarked J. Larkin, 1816. A signature or inscription under the WR initials has been largely erased. It would appear then that Stone produced another copy of the popular rainbow lorikeet image for a collector which finally made its way to Rex Nankerville. This is the kind of discovery one loves to make and such treasures can still be found amongst the Nankerville collection. Here you can compare uh, the rainbow lorikeet to the printed version in White's journal and also to another naive rather... <laughs> stretch-necked version uh, 
of which Nankerville has four or so by the same artist of this, these strange-looking birds. So, you know, you can call up all three and look at the three of them at the same time in the reading room. Um, we can also investigate the early development of natural history representation of a single species through Nankerville's collection, in this case at the other end of the earth. The polar bear, or white bear, as it was first known to Europeans, was sighted, killed, then documented and memorialised. Here you can see John Weber's iconic drawing of the bear from Cook's Final Voyage, in contrast with Frederick W. Beachy's drawing from two decades later. You can also see how Weber's image makes its way into Cook's official published account via engraver Peter Mazel uh, in 1784 uh, on the left, and how then the animal is uh, reimagined as the polar bear for the famous naturalist Thomas Pennant's History of Quadrupeds, printed in London in 1793. Or, for a 20th century representation, we can even see Nankerville's own photograph of the bear, polar bears in the zoo in Glasgow. Um, the extraordinary story of Nankerville acquiring nearly 130 17th century natural history watercolours, which had been in the Royal Library, after they'd left their original owner, the collector Cassiano Dal Pozzo in Rome, via a cardinal and then a pope and then George III, uh, is too complex to relate in detail here, and I have spoken about it before. However, this lovely coot, still held here and painted by Vincenzo Leonardi in about 1630 in Rome, did not get repatriated to the Queen by Rex Nancaville in 1976. This was the year in which Nankerville received his long, long-awaited knighthood. He was to die only a year later in London, by which time the Royal Library were reunited with their splendid drawings. I'm pleased to say that this library has just recently purchased the voluminous catalogue raisonné set assembled by the Royal Library of these extraordinary images from Cassiano's Paper Museum. I've brought the volumes here tonight so if you'd like to look at them, I've marked up most of the ones that were owned by Nan Cavell <coughs> with orange tags, if you want to have a look. Now, to finish up tonight with some of Nan Cavell's collection of delicate specimens of New Zealand seaweeds. These items are surprisingly robust survivors of centuries past and provided the collector with more potential to invent narrative. While the delicate scent of these sampled pieces of pristine environments have faded, they still radiate an aura of foreign places and times. They were once keenly picked and handled among the various ecosystems of New Zealand. No doubt the species were gathered along the foreshore, at the seashore, the mountain trail and the woody forest in an effort to entertain, to educate and to enthuse local family and friends. This amateur collecting was also a way of acclimatising to a new home and engaging with family 20,000 kilometres away to the north. Such collecting also enabled dialogue and specimen swapping with keen citizen scientists of the colonial era in different places. These delightful pressed forms are also a barometer of sorts of the diversity of ecosystems now under threat in a way that the original collectors and later Nan Cavell could not begin to imagine. The billowing smokestacks of the Industrial Revolution in the Northern Hemisphere, while being gritty and annoying daily reminders of progress in the British Isles, were in fact the beginning of the end which is now in sight. 
Maori and Pākehā looked out to the pristine skies of Aotearoa in the 19th century and could not have imagined the consequences of this exploding carbon overload. Even the idea that the two worlds were somehow connected other than by ships would have seemed a slightly arcane idea. The swirling vortices of wind and sea would bring their toxic loads into the once pristine Pacific. Nankavell seems to have collected New Zealand natural history specimens in particular. This harvesting from afar of pieces of his homeland is telling in some ways. His lack of resolve to return home to revisit his troubled past and his deep nostalgia for the beaches of Christchurch perhaps enthused him to collect New Zealand in an almost granular way. Piece by piece, each fern frond and seaweed branch ensured his collection grew organically and no doubt to the delight of the collector, sometimes these albums of pressings had pleasing provenances. The first example seen here was catalogued by the collector as being collected and cross-referenced in New Zealand by his great-grandmother, Mrs William Nankervell, in 1850. The samples are delightful and carefully presented with a seemingly accurate taxonomic description. I do not think there is any chance that Nankervell's granny produced this scholarly grouping of seaweeds. <laughs> he has created a pleasing, if improbable, family provenance for an object, which probably didn't have one, or overrode an existing one. As I said at the beginning, he was collecting stories around objects as well as the objects themselves and sometimes engineered them when it suited his upwardly mobile trajectory. This Nankerville seaweed album, <clears throat> however, has a much more assured provenance through its inscription. 30 Taranaki seaweeds for Gemma from Charles M. Clark, 13th of October, 1861. The giver is presumably Sir Charles Mansfield Clark, KCB, adjutant to the 57th Regiment during the New Zealand Maori War and later Governor of Malta. The dedicatee would seem to be his wife, Gemma Cecilia Adams, who died as late as 1922. There is no attempt at taxonomic analysis or documentation. It is a gift of love and of dedication. It also demonstrates to the researcher the amateur colonial interest in collecting the endemic species of an outpost of the empire. This collection of seaweeds has what Nankervell would have regarded as the perfect provenance. Colenso, the collector and early New Zealand settler, was a very notable, though ambiguous, figure. He trained as a bookbinder and printer, just like Nankervell, and more desirable still was a natural historian from Cornwall, where Nankerville's family roots lay. I think this album was like a kind of talisman to Nankerville. The album of William Colenso's personal collection of pressed seaweed, starting in Penzance and continuing later in New Zealand, circa 1830 to 1840, the great title, um, is an object which connected Nankerville's family past in Cornwall with his predecessors past in New Zealand and through a famous figure. It would have been gold to the collector. The long-lived Cornish-born printer, missionary, botanist and politician, William Colenso, was an inveterate collector of natural history specimens in New Zealand and wrote about them widely. He was a passionate national hist uh, natural historian and arrived in Paya, New Zealand in 1834. Uh, the following year, he met Charles Darwin when he visited on the Beagle 
1835. He later became firm friends with uh, Australian botanist and collector Alan Cunningham and his brother. He also became a lifelong friend of and correspondence with John Dalton Hooker and with his father also, uh, who visited on HMS Erebus. Uh, and interestingly, both the Hooker father and son were the directors of Kew Gardens. So, you know, Rex was in illustrious company with this connection. Colenso's life in New Zealand encompassed printing translations of the Bible and pamphlets into Maori, and he roamed widely, fulsomely collecting specimens which he sometimes shoved down the front of his shirt to protect them on his horse. Eventually, his evangelism, work ethic, abrasiveness, and infidelity with a Maori friend counted against him. For his scientific contributions, ultimately, however, he was made a fellow of the Linnaean Society in 1865 and in 1886 became a fellow of the Royal Society. Nancavell prized Colenso's printings and acquired numerous items produced by New Zealand's early visitor. Dozens of his books, pamphlets, as well as his manuscript items and a photographic portrait were collected. The arc of Colenso's experience from printer in Penzance, Cornwall, to Minister of Religion in New Zealand piqued Nankervell's interest. To an extent, it mirrored that of his, his indomitable forebears, as he referred to them, also early settlers to New Zealand from Cornwall, though not from Penzance, also, the fact that the seaweeds collected spanned both the Cornish shore of the English Channel and the beaches of New Zealand would, I think, appeal to the collector. Further, Colenso's marital issues and the birth of his illegitimate son, Wirimu, to Rapika Maritani, a Maori woman, a servant in the family home, has a strange resonance with Nankavell's own family history, which was very difficult. His mother was a domestic working in the neighbourhood for quite a prosperous fellow called Wyatt, and he seems to have raped her or interfered with her. And uh, Alice, uh, his mother, gives birth at the age of 18 and uh, he, uh, outside of Christchurch, so the whole thing's hushed up and he's brought up by his grandparents, thinking they're his parents. In his epic book, Portraits of the Famous and Infamous, finally published in 1975, Nankervell describes Colenso as the Caxton of New Zealand, a typically Nankervellian flourish. His apprenticeship as a Christchurch bookbinder seems to inform the next part of his description. Colenso, he says, set up the first New Zealand printing press of which he was the compositor, printer, binder and distributor. Roles that Nankervell understood well from his training he continues to catalogue Colenso's friendships and achievements in the book. What is curious, considering Nankerville's bruised psyche, given his illegitimate origins in New Zealand, is the comment with which he concludes his assessment of Colenso. In 1852, he was deprived of his deacon's office for having a natural child. So much for the appalling enlightenment of the missionary's superintendents, when he, Colenso, had so much to offer. This sounds like a cry from the heart to me. Unlike Colenso, who heavily wore the public shame arising from his affair and the presence of his son Wirimu, Nankervell managed to escape the odium of bastardry. 
It was, a well, it was a fact well hidden and tucked neatly into his past like a furtive note inserted into the pages of a library book, waiting for somebody to possibly find it. Luckily for his composure, self of status, sense of status and self-worth, his dirty secret was not to be aired during his lifetime. Well, to close, I'd like to say happy birthday to Rex Nankavell today. Thank you for providing us with such an extraordinary collection and with an equally extraordinary life story. I hope I can do them both justice. Thank you. Thanks, Nash. You've stolen my thunder a little bit because I was sitting there thinking how much I loved the idea of the collection being a self-portrait of the collector and that Rex has given us a collection that is as extraordinary or maybe even not quite as extraordinary <laughs> as his own life has turned yeah. out to be. We've got time for a few questions if anyone would like to ask some questions this evening. There's microphones with Ros and Aaron. Oh, we've got a gentleman here. And Aaron's on his way with a microphone for you. Thank you. Oh, thanks very much, Nat. That was fascinating. Now, my Thank question you. is, do you have an anticipated publication target for your book? That's the old question, isn't it? It's a bit rubbery, like um, how long is a piece of string? Um, I hope to... I've written... I'm structuring in, 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 in a way which I think will work. One is the narrative of his life, birth to death, with all the various stories thrown in. But then <clears throat> beside those, there are essays that look at his collection, because otherwise there's not much point in doing it if we don't talk about the collection. So the collection stories, I've managed to write six, seven, eight of those so far out of perhaps 12 or something like that. And they are really telling funny or very revealing stories about his psyche and the way he went about things and the art world of the time and the antiquarian world. And you can do that through looking at aspects of his collecting, which is always entertaining with the overriding arch. I think I need one more trip to London, probably to try to run to two more people to ground to work out a couple of missing figures. But I think within the next uh, two years, I'd like to have it done. I get a chance to read it. Yes, oh yeah, no, I, me too. <laughs> Anyone else? Here we are. Um, Hello. Just a wonderful talk, so thank you so much. That was Pleasure. both entertaining and also enlightening. Fantastic. Um, you've, you've shown us the connection from the Christchurch to London and, and England at that time. Where does Australia fit into the story? It's a very good question. Um, well, what happened was Nankervell's family just quickly split into two branches, one that came to Australia, that's an interesting story, and one that stayed in New Zealand. One that came to Australia did incredibly well. His great-great-uncle, whatever it was, was the wealthiest man in Australia for a time. Uh, they had sugar plantations. May Casey was married into that branch of the family, married to Richard Casey and the Governor-General, etc. Uh, government minister. And she's in London in the 40s, uh, en route to America when he was posted to Washington and she meets Rex and they establish their family, you know, related in some way, sort of distantly. But, um, and she sees his collection and just thinks this is extraordinary. And it's just the right timing because it's just after the war 
Uh, well, in fact, I think it's actually just still during the war. And, and he's thinking, you know, what am I going to do if a bomb comes down and takes all this out and all this effort's been to nothing? So she basically comes back and starts um, getting the National Library involved. So that's about 19... in the uh, mid-40s. 1948, he sends out 1,300 fantastic pieces from the collection as a kind of teaser to, the, to Canberra and says, you know, here are some things, look after them, you know, you can publish them, whatever. And uh, the gist of it is that that starts a dialogue with, with the library, in particularly with uh, Harold White, who saw the value of it immediately, as did Menzies, to his credit, and took them 11 years, though, to work through with Treasury, surprise, surprise, um, how to pay for it. And they paid £70,000 in two tranches six years apart, so he got 70000 when it was probably worth at least three, four hundred thousand pounds at the time and he then spent all the rest of that money on buying another collection which he gave us. So the Australian connection was he wanted a knighthood, Australia fronted up with one via London quicker than the New Zealanders who weren't interested at all. And in fact there's a very interesting quote I read somewhere in a biography of Colenso which when he has a portrait done by Gottfried Lindau, who's a very famous New Zealand painter of Maoris, but he does a portrait of Colenso. When he does the, the unveiling of it, somebody who's there says publicly, you know, that um, people in New Zealand always thought a sportsman was much more important than any man with an idea. And that, in a way, is kind of... That was in 1860. <laughs> that was still persisting in 1960. And Nankerville wasn't socially... Um, apt enough to be considered for knighthood. So when they had 12 knighthoods to give out for the Queen uh, visit in 1954, he was reliably told he would get one and he didn't. And that was like, right, wipe them off. We're going full steam with Plan B, which is Australia. Now, it wasn't Plan B, but, you know, um, there was a thought that he might have split the collection up. But he didn't really want to do that because he saw it more valuable being together. So that's the story. No more questions? We can. I'll remind you about the books if you want to come and have a look. Yeah, do come and have a look at the books. Nat's able to do this wonderful deep research into the library's collection as our treasures curator um, because of support from the Australian government through their Catalyst Australian Arts and Culture Fund. They have funded the position for us, which is an amazing gift to the library, really. And we are also blessed to have a number of National Library patrons who support mm. our Treasures Access programs and allow us to present events like this and our Treasures Dinner on the 26th of April. So I hope you might think about joining us for that dinner when we'll be looking at another one of our extraordinary collections, that of photographer Frank Hurley. On that note, I'd like to close the evening. Thank you all for coming. Thank you to those of you who are joining us online, but especially let's thank Sir Rex and Nat for a wonderful <laughs> evening.